0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 85 Heretic Four Approaches to Dropping H Bombs. At the end of April 2015, I had the privilege of giving this talk at the 2015 Theological Conference, sponsored by the Restoration Fellowship. This was held at the Calvin Center in Hampton, Georgia, near Atlanta. I met a lot of wonderful people there, including a couple of Trinity's podcast listeners, and I found it really encouraging. I recommend that conference to you. Thanks to Sir Anthony Buzzard and his wife, Lady Barbara Buzzard, and also to Carlos and Sarah Jimenez for their work in organizing this conference. This talk was also filmed by Sharon and Dan Gill, and I hope that the video will eventually be out on their website, 21st Century Reformation. Before we get started, I just want to let you know that I'm working on some more really exciting interviews for the Trinity's podcast, so watch out for those in the next couple of months. Also, I'm planning to do an episode entirely devoted to listener questions, so if you'd like to email me a question, please do that, or you can upload me an audio question. My email's easy to Google up. The upload link for an audio file is on the blog post for any episode of the Trinity's podcast. I can't guarantee that I'll get to all of them, but I'll try to pick the most interesting ones and do as many of them as I can. Without further ado then, over to me. Good morning. My presentation is called Heretic, Four Approaches to Dropping H-Bombs. Imagine that you're talking to a Christian friend of yours, someone with a lot of theological opinions. He says something and you think to yourself, that sounds off to me. I never heard that before. You even start to wonder, is this guy a heretic? And eventually your trigger finger starts to itch start asking yourself, should I tell this guy he's a heretic or publicly denounce him as a heretic? I suggest that you first should ask yourself why and how such an accusation might make sense. Let's start off with a few definitions. A heretic is one who commits the sin of heresy. Heresy, in the sense of a claim or a belief or a teaching, is that because of which a heretic is such. And a heretic commits the sin of heresy by means of a heresy, by holding a a certain belief or uh, making a certain public teaching. Now, at least if you're talking about the old Catholic tradition, the primary concept here is the concept of heresy as a sin. It's different with Protestants, and I'll get to that in a minute, but I'm going to start with the Catholic tradition here. For them, The primary concept is that of heresy as a sin and God bless them. The Catholics have inherited some of the old Roman uh, efficiency organization and legal mindset. And if you want official definitions, they usually have an official definition for you. And they have an official definition of the sin of heresy, which you may not know. But when you find out what it is, you actually might be a little bit relieved. And this is from Canon Law number 751. <laughs> so if your Catholic friend says you're a heretic, you can cite that chapter to them. Here's the, these are their words. This is from official Catholic teaching. Heresy, in the sense of a sin, is the obstinate, post-baptismal denial of some truth, which must be believed with divine and Catholic faith or it is likewise an obstinate doubt concerning the same." Now, where is the relief? Well, first notice that only a baptized Catholic can commit this sin. (laughs) I absolve you. Well, the Pope absolves you, I guess. Protestants and other non-Catholics, sorry you cannot commit the sin of heresy, so you can't be heretics. If a heretic is one who commits the sin of heresy, Now, you can commit the sins of apostasy and schism, being a schismatic, going going away from the pope, but those are a story for another day. Second, notice the all-important term obstinate. What does it take to have a belief or a doubt obstinately? I take it that one must have been confronted by a bishop or his representative and refused to budge. Sociologist Rodney Stark has observed in a couple of his books the practical aspect of this. If the Roman Catholic Church doesn't consider you or your teaching or your group to be a threat, it will simply decline to confront you. And because they have not confronted you, you are not a heretic. Because you have not held that opinion obstinately. Really. And it's not in their interest to make heretics out of people in many cases if they're not a threat. They just absorb people into their churches and into their monastic communities, who believed and taught many things contrary to official doctrine. The church chose not to make them heretics by choosing not to confront them. By their official definition, no one is a heretic until after they're confronted and then only if they refuse to yield. The lay Catholic, the ordinary Catholic person, lacks the authorization to declare anyone a heretic. If you're a Roman Catholic and you wanna go by the book, it looks like all you can do is complain up the chain of command, tell your priest or write a letter to your bishop. But maybe you're a Catholic and you don't want to go buy the book. In fact, there is another unofficial but long-standing tradition begun around the end of the second Christian century. This other approach, this unofficial approach, is to listen to your friend, the one with the theological opinions, and consult a manual of heresiology. (laughs) And then you find a claim which sort of, more or less, sounds like him, and then you denounce him using the provided label. So he'll end up being a Sabellian, an Aryan, a monarchian, a philanthropist, and so on. Never mind whether or not you really understand those terms, <laughs> or the disputes in which they were coined by those who ended up on the Catholic side of the argument. But beware, these manuals were and are assembled by self-appointed heresy hunters, self-appointed protectors of the universal faith. The first known heresiologist was the Bishop Irenaeus of Lyon, writing his refutation of knowledge falsely so-called in about the year 180. Patristic scholar Dr. Mark Edwards says about this book of heresies that it is, quote, perhaps the only one from the patristic age whose arguments against the rejected doctrines are not wholly devoid of intellectual or forensic merit. Let me translate that for you. Generally, heresiologies are pretty terrible. They're they're not terribly accurate or fair. There's one very famous bad one by a guy named Epiphanius, which is much later. In my view, these manuals provide an illusion of understanding and completeness. All the heresies, they suppose, derive from named heresy arcs and are obviously wrong and easily refuted. The problem is, historians now know, that these accounts of the origins of heresies are often inaccurate and distort the teachings of the people in question. If you want to know what Sibelius really thought, good luck. (laughs) I've looked into it. I've I've had other people say that I'm agnostic. I have no idea what Sibelius really taught. I know what they said later about him when he became a stock character. Uh, Sibelianism became a stock uh, position in these manuals. Similar things are true of the Monarchians and others. Even sometimes it's hard to figure out what some of the so-called Arians believed. Essentially, this method is pigeonholing every theological opinion you disagree with using traditional but unclearly defined terms derived from alleged heresy arcs, the founders of the heresies. This is not the way of sober truth-seeking. It's a way for the intellectually lazy to convince themselves they've mastered the range of all allegedly Christian teachings that's what the manual promises for you, and that they've acquired the skill of distinguishing the true from the false. And it's a way for the ambitious and the contentious to cause a ruckus by denouncing people using loaded traditional language. This genre usually stays within the realm of polemics, which is to say the realm of typically mean, unfair, and poorly argued public controversy. In any case, the Catholic Church has not left the matter of making heretics to self-appointed heresy hunters. But you say, I'm not Catholic, I'm Protestant. Protestantism, we all know, doesn't have some one organization, some one set of ruling bishops. Thus, Protestants can't define the sin of heresy as essentially defying the correction of the bishops. Thus, a Protestant Christian might be in defiance of one ruling body, say the Southern Baptists, but not another, say the United Methodists. And thus, one might be a heretic relative to one, but but not relative to the other. If a heretic is one who commits the sin of heresy, and this is essentially defined the correction of some leadership, then whether one is a heretic or not is relative to an organization. But the whole tradition of talking about heresy and heretics doesn't grant that heresy is relative to a group in that way. There just needs to be a yes or no answer to whether or not a person is a heretic or whether a teaching is heretical. You don't want to get into, well, it is for the Methodists but not for the Baptists. No, it's just supposed to be yes or no, it's supposed to be non-relative. And this goes way back, the whole tradition of heresy talk assumes that it's not relative in that way. So, for instance, Irenaeus, he didn't grant that he himself was a heretic relative to the Marcionites or the Valentinians. No, those guys are heretics. I'm not a heretic relative to their authority. They don't have any authority. So Protestants, it seems to me, tend to make the concept of heresy as a claim or a belief or a lack of belief primary. They don't primarily define the sin of heresy and start with that, like the Catholics do. They rather focus on the idea that a heresy is a claim. So then talk of a person as a heretic or as committing the sin of heresy. It really only makes sense in a judicial kind of context, for instance, in a heresy trial in a denomination. Those do occur, heresy trials in denominations, but they're fairly rare. Confrontation by a church official largely drops out of Protestant thinking, at least it's not front and center. They prefer Protestants to think that a person is a heretic simply by teaching or believing or not believing certain things. Also, it seems to me that the main bulk of Protestants have in practice embraced the old method of pigeonholing, the approach of heresiology, which is so hopelessly polemical. They tend to adopt the same heresy labels that were developed by bishop-ruled Catholic Christianity in mostly the third through the fifth centuries. Thus, they in practice rely on heresiologists, be they seminary professors, independent apologists, or enthusiastic jousters on the internet. Of course, that's what the internet's for. Speaking of enthusiastic jousting, I hope that you'll have questions and objections for me. I'm a philosophy professor. I love friendly arguments. (laughs) If you love truth, you must love friendly arguments because it's a pursuit of the truth together. So if I'm full of beans, I hope that you will stand up and explain why that is so. And if you're right, I hope I will be uh, humble enough to agree with you in front of everybody. Frankly, heretic denunciation goes hand in hand with traditions of slandering and hating these targets of denunciation, which is evil, and they also went hand in hand with brutal government persecution of alleged heretics. You know, when church and state are allied together, when they're sharing the same bed, so to speak, heresy isn't just a sin, it's a crime, and it's a crime very much like treason you would get the death penalty, or your property confiscated, or your legal rights curtailed. In modern times, both Catholics and Protestants have come to believe in freedom of religion, so thank God for that. You wouldn't have seen that coming 500 years ago, by the way. Nobody would have guessed that. Speaking of enthusiastic jousters, Protestants are also painfully aware that heresy hunting easily gets out of hand. Certain people love to accuse, and habitually go off half-cocked. Accusions serve to burnish the image of the accuser as a defender of the faith, and a person will get a self-righteous thrill at calling out the alleged intellectual sins of others. Human evil is all too quick, experience shows, to seize onto traditions of dropping H-bombs and to use them to devastate and divide Christian communities. Because of this great danger, nearly all Protestants realize that not just any false teaching should count as a heresy. Maybe a person, for instance, has his own idiosyncratic scheme of reconstructing Jesus' life. And this person believes that Jesus was 45 years old when he was crucified. Irenaeus believed something similar to that. He thought Jesus was closer to 50 than to 30. Weirdly. But this, most Protestants would think, is false but not worth denouncing as heresy. After all, to declare someone a heretic has another practical aspect. You are saying that this person, unless they repent of their serious sin, should be excluded from Christian fellowship. Roman Catholics will, when they choose, excommunicate a heretic. Protestants will kick a declared heretic out of their church or denomination. Heresy, then, is deadly serious business It concerns our intimate friendships with our fellow Christians, and it may concern the salvation of the heretic or those whom he teaches. So the common move here by Protestant theologians and apologists who don't want to just, you know, hit everything with with an H-bomb, the common move is to distinguish essential from non-essential doctrines. It's only by believing or denying an essential doctrine that one becomes a heretic, they say. The idea is that one may err concerning non-essential beliefs and still be a Christian in good standing. But as to the essential ones, they must all be believed and none may be denied. In this way, we won't have to declare every person with an oddball opinion to be a heretic, but we can root out the dastardly so-and-so's mentioned in traditional heresiologies. But what does essential mean? Essential is a term from philosophy. It does not merely mean important. An essence of something, or an essential feature of it, is a defining feature of it, a feature without which that sort of thing can't exist. It's essential to a triangle to have three sides. It's just a contradiction to think there's a triangle that doesn't have have three sides, right? If something didn't have three sides, it wouldn't be a triangle. So having three sides is essential to it. Arguably, it's essential to a quantity of water that it contains hydrogen and and oxygen atoms. An essential feature of property is one its owner can never in principle exist without having that feature. It's defining. Thing may come into existence or go out of existence, but every moment of its existence, it, anything, must have all of its essential properties. This is just the idea of an essential property. Thus, If some doctrine, some doctrine D, is essential to Christianity, then no one is a Christian unless he believes that doctrine. And as long as there has been any Christian community, it has taught that essential doctrine. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a Christian community. Christianity, a system of belief, the true theology, contains as its core, as a defining part, this doctrine, if indeed it's an essential doctrine. And any group that has ceased to teach that doctrine were taught against that doctrine would be, at best, defectively Christian, if not pseudo-Christian. Okay, so essential means that the thing can't exist without it. If a doctrine D is essential to Christianity, that means, unless that doctrine is there, we're not talking about Christianity anymore. And it means if you don't believe that doctrine, you're not a Christian. A teaching, then, can't be brand new, only recently minted, if it's an essential doctrine. Christianity has been around for some time now. If it's really essential, it must have been right there, at the very heart of the faith, right in the beginning, in the minds of true believers ever since. The early theologian, apologist, and heresiologist, Tertullian of Carthage, understood this point, and he used it as a weapon against the Gnostics in the first half of the third century. Their teachings, he argued, were newly minted, but mainstream Christian teachings have been taught since the Apostles since there have been Christians, which is shortly after Jesus' resurrection. Unfortunately for Tertullian, he was, as Shakespeare said, hoist with his own petard, (laughs) which is to say, petard is a bomb, which is to say roughly fragged with his own hand grenade. (laughs) So the point is, uh, Tertullian had this great objection that he would beat down all the Gnostics with, that, uh, look, we're teaching what's always been taught since the time of, the apostles and Jesus said, you guys, what, you just originated in the 130s or the 150s? That just shows you're just a different group. You're not part of us. The problem is that many of the things that Tertullian himself taught are demonstrably not from the earlier generation. Some of the things he says about God's substance and uh, the sun being a prolation, an emanation, that's a portion of, of God's substance and all this theoretical stuff, so, you know, the objection that he beats down the Gnostics with actually, you know, drops right at his feet and then explodes. And this is, a, this is a constant problem with heresiologists. So the same point applies to Catholic or Protestant apologists today, who argue that the Trinity or the two natures of Christ are essential doctrines. If they're, if they're really essential, they have always been believed and taught by Christians. This is demonstrably not so. No Christian confessed belief in a tripersonal God until sometime in the 4th century. Now, they used to talk about the Trinity, yes, at the end of the 2nd century, but that was just a triad, a grouping of three. It was God, His Son, and His Spirit. The one God was a member of the Trinity when they first started talking about the Trinity. Trios in Greek or Trinitas in Latin. They talked of the Trinity early on. That wasn't a tripersonal God. When you get into the 4th century, at least by the time of Augustine, there is a tripersonal God. And then at that point, if you ask them, is the one God the Father? No, the one God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you could just show by their usage that nobody but nobody was talking about a tripersonal God in the 100s and the 200s. They talked about a trinity, yeah, but the trinity wasn't a tripersonal God. God was like the founding member of this this threesome, this triad. No Christian confessed the two natures of Christ in its official required form until the Council of Chalcedon in 451, although clashing speculations about Christ being divine and human did begin in the second Christian century. So this stuff about he's got to have a divine nature because he does miracles, because he saves, uh, because he brings divine teaching, oh that, obviously that's a sign of a divine nature, right? Right. Well, this led to rancorous disputes. That got really rancorous leading up to the Council of Chalcedon. But anyway, if by teaching the two natures of Christ you mean like the real, compliant, creedal-compliant doctrine, well, nobody was professing that in the second century. So that's the problem with this type of objection. Hey, the Trinity is essential to Christianity. It's what Christians have always and everywhere believed. Nope. No, but you need to dig into the historians to find this out. Generally, systematic theologians are not going to tell you this. Still, I think the Protestants are right about a couple of things. It's surely correct that Christians may disagree about some things, and not only styles of music or politics, but even theological matters. And surely there is, in the faith once delivered to the saints, a core, a set of essential teachings, the acceptance of which is the basis for Christian community. But notice that in agreeing that there should be an essence to Christian belief, we've only made a formal point, a point that in theory some teachings will be essential and others not, and only the essential ones are required to be in our community. Fine, but which teachings are essential exactly? And the second we ask that question, we realize it'll be controversial which beliefs are and are not essential. And it'll be unclear who gets to make this decision. My experience is that when Protestant theologians say that heresy is a denial of some essential doctrine, they're faking it. They don't have a list of such. They don't have any procedure about how to come up with such for deciding which claims are in the essential group, such that if you deny one, you're not a Christian. And they are aware that there are serious disagreements about which beliefs are essential. For instance, some American evangelicals strongly insist on biblical inerrancy. Various other evangelicals and other Protestants deny that inerrancy is essential or even true. Frankly, many Protestant theologians just start to boldly make things up about what is essential or how heresy should be understood. As an example, In a recent book, Anglican theologian, Dr. Alistair McGrath ventures to assert this. So what is heresy? Heresy is best seen as a form of Christian belief that more by accident than design, ends up subverting, destabilizing, and even destroying the core of the Christian faith. Now as a definition of heresy, this is as clear as mud. But notice that it's an essentially a practical definition. A heresy here is construed as a belief or a teaching which, sooner or later, maybe centuries on, turns out to be harmful to Christian faith. I take it either belief or living or both. But this definition is idiosyncratic. It's unique to Dr. McGrath. As we've seen, the traditional Catholic, both Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, approach is to treat the concept of heresy, that is, the sin, as fundamental which is essentially defying the bishops when they confront you about matters of Christian belief. McGrath, like a great many Protestant theologians, doesn't recognize the authority of current-day Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox bishops, but strangely, they in practice think that it is unconscionable for a Christian to depart from the pronouncements of meetings of such bishops at Constantinople or Chalcedon. This is something I think is strange about present-day Protestant theologians. They have never lived a day of their life under the rule of Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox bishops. But they think that what those bishops did in the 400s or the 300s is just absolutely binding on all Christians. I don't understand this. Unless they take the old Reformed line that clearly what all the Council says is just unpacking what's already in the Bible. No. No. That, that's not right. Serious scholars don't think that nowadays. In any case, who judges that a teaching is a heresy in his sense, in McGrath's sense? Who decides that a teaching is long-term unhelpful or unhealthy for Christianity? He tells us, quote, the whole Christian church, not a party within that church, end quote. That's who judges. But of course, many seemingly Christian groups have ignored were denied some of the things insisted upon at the councils of 381 or 451. With present-day ecumenical fashions being what they are, Dr. McGrath is not going to lift a finger to help you decide what is included in or excluded from the true church. In the end, his, in his book, Dr. McGrath is just reassuring mainstream believers that the traditional condemnations are the correct ones. He gives unthinking, shallow brush-offs to serious Christian thinkers who would dare depart from the ancient creeds. He pigeonholes them as mere revivers of ancient mistakes, and he brazenly ignores their many carefully wrought theological and exegetical arguments. So, for instance, if he ever ever bothers to discuss the Socinians, like, oh yeah, that's just the old anti-Trinitarianism, ho ho ho. Can you believe they're still repeating that garbage? if you ever looked into what serious students of the new testament some of the socinian theologians were you would realize how outrageous that is but anyway i'm not here to defend the socinians Now all of this may give you a big fat Protestant headache. Who's to say what counts as a, her- as a heresy? And doesn't a Christian have a right to his or her convictions? Maybe we should have no doctrinal standards. Maybe we should just point at the Bible and say that we as a group adhere to whatever is taught in the New Testament. This approach has been tried in the late 18th and 19th centuries in America And it is what turned American Unitarian Christianity into a non-Christian movement, eventually becoming what we know now as Unitarian Universalism. I call it the free, that is to say, in the old sense of the word, liberal tradition. They actually called some of these churches free churches, like free of creeds, free of uh, merely human authority. This stance was, frankly, an aberration and it was driven by the early American cultural disdain for authoritarian traditions. It was, in my view, an overreaction to state-controlled churches of Europe then current. I will deal briefly with this third perspective about H-bombs. First, in my view, this theory is impractical. If your aim is to live in a Christian community, this isn't going to work. With no doctrinal standards, or with only gesturing at the Bible and saying, we all accept that, however understood, what defense do you have when your pastor or your teaching elder stops believing in a personal God? Or what about when he asserts that the only essential message of the Bible is to love your neighbor? How about when your pastor deems that baptism is a outmoded, no longer necessary tradition? These things all actually happened. These are not hypothetical examples. They happened in America in free churches. These free, creedless churches simply chose human autonomy over fidelity to apostolic tradition. My second point about this stance is I think it's hypocritical. Any like-minded religious community, Christian or not, in fact has its own standards about what can be taught therein even if they pretend not to. Try going into I I know this isn't a Christian example, okay, but try going into a Unitarian Universalist congregation and teaching that wives should submit to their husbands, that any sex outside of heterosexual marriage is a sin, or that George W. Bush was an excellent president. (laughs) You will soon find yourself unwelcome. Most importantly, this approach goes against apostolic practice. They did not simply accept any teaching or pretend to have no doctrinal standards or opine that it'll all work out if we just let everyone find his own way. To the contrary, they were capable of ferociously opposing some teachings and of ejecting people from membership in a church, and they nagged us to hold tightly to the traditions that they taught us. So this isn't their way. In my view, we need like the brave Protestants of the 16th century to go back to the sources, back to the books of the New Testament, and carefully rethink our approach to dropping H-bombs. The Reformation, I think, came up short in this area. Mainstream Protestants have traded the old Catholic approach for one which only raises further questions and invites confusion, unjustified speculation, and uh, hysterical denunciation. We must continue to reform to revise human traditions until they conform to divine revelation. The New Testament doesn't have a whole lot to say about heretics, per se, or heresy as a sin, or heresy as a claim. Uh, It does warn repeatedly of false teachers, and when looked at as a whole, I think it provides a fourth and better way of thinking about false teaching and false teachers. For lack of time, I'm going to present only my conclusions about the New Testament perspective on these issues. You will have to be a good Berean and search the scriptures for yourself to see whether or not these things are so. As I see it, there are three relevant features of apostolic tradition. First, there is what I call minimalism about essential doctrines. Remember, an essential doctrine must be one that you can't be a Christian without believing. Even if you're a child, even if you're uneducated, even if you have a very low IQ, we should be afraid of adding to or trying to change the deal, the new covenant proclaimed by Jesus and the apostles. We dare not make it harder for people to be saved or make people think that it's harder. A strong case for this is argued by the great Christian philosopher John Locke. John Locke was disturbed by the acrimonious disputes of his day between Calvinists and Arminians and between Trinitarians and Unitarians. He knew that in many cases, mere theories, well-intentioned speculations were being foisted on Christians as essential beliefs. Being a Protestant, in the winter of 1694 to 1695, he sat down and carefully searched the New Testament to find out what is really essential to find out how much or how little is required in the way of belief to be a Christian. And this is what he found. Here's a little quote from his book. This was the great proposition that was then controverted concerning Jesus of Nazareth, whether he was the Messiah or no. And the assent to that was that which distinguished believers from unbelievers. In the New Testament, the belief that separates believers from unbelievers is acceptance of Jesus as God's Messiah. I would add that it's more of a confession, it's a kind of summary of basic Christian teaching than it is one single belief. If you really believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you know what that means, that Jesus is the Messiah, then of course you must also believe in the one true God, the God of Israel, and believe that he sent Jesus and empowered Jesus to teach about God and to be the initiator of a new covenant to willingly give himself as a once-and-for-all sacrifice for sin you also will believe that Jesus a real man God's anointed died and was raised back to life and then was raised up to God's right hand all of this I would say is in the job description of the Messiah as provided by the prophets So, confessing that Jesus is Messiah, or just believing that Jesus is the exalted Lord, it really includes believing those things as well. Also included, I think, is that people are saved in His name. They're saved by believing in Jesus that He was who He said He was, the Son of God. And so, not by keeping the law of Moses. I think that's part of the essence as well. And if Jesus really is God's agent, exalted now, and destined to rule, then he also must be the boss of you. If he really was sent by God, he really is God's Messiah, then he can only be your boss. Now maybe he in fact isn't, maybe you like to do your own thing. But anyway, you have agreed in principle that he should function as your Lord. So there's a lot that's packed into just believing that Jesus is the Messiah, but that's, that's the constant confession in the New Testament. Locke makes a powerful case based on the whole New Testament that this, acceptance of Jesus as Messiah, with all that means is what was required to be a Christian. I can't summarize Locke's case here, but I commend this book to you. It's easy to find, it's still in print. You can get it online. If you could just abide with a little bit of ye old English. <laughs> It's a a very good read. But in support of his minimalism about essential doctrine, let me just make two points. First, there is the near constant practice of Christians through the ages. Most of us have always thought that children, uneducated people, and the slow can be believing Christians. And those of us who hold to believers baptism do baptize such folk because they can accept Jesus as their Lord, as the risen Messiah, the mediator between God and humans. We don't quiz them first on the Athanasian creed, uh, ask if they understand the doctrine of the communication of attributes, which I don't even want to get into, or the particulars of the definition of Chalcedon, and it would seem obscene for us to require such things for a person to gain entrance to the Christian community. Second, look at what is preached to people who are converted in the book of Acts, specifically in chapters 8, 10, and 16. These conversions seem to happen in a matter of hours. Not much instruction is given. What is preached seem to be the facts of Jesus' life as fulfilling the predictions of the prophets, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, period. Period. No two natures, no deity of Christ, no eternal generation and procession. Also, no precise theory of atonement, no exact biblical canon, no resolution of the problem of the compatibility of divine foreknowledge and human freedom. There's a lot of those theories out there, but those aren't essential. No theories about divine eternity or divine simplicity. No reformed doctrine of grace, with all that entails, in Reformed teaching. In chapter 16, the jailer wants to know how to be saved. And this is what he's told. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, that's not all that was said, but before the night's over, him and the whole family are baptized. Apparently, in that length of time, they acquired the beliefs strictly necessary to being Christians. Unless you think the apostles were baptizing hastily, foolishly. And Cornelius and his friends receive the necessary teaching, it seems, in one afternoon, which is summarized, uh, the teaching given is summarized by Luke in ten verses. If you examine those ten verses, you won't find any subtle metaphysics of the divine nature there, or really any theology or Christology in the theoretical senses of those terms. Rather, the facts of Jesus' career are laid out, and they are urged to believe in Jesus and receive the forgiveness of sins through him. A third grader could understand that sermon, and I suppose that many have. Just as an aside, when I was baptized, I was seven going on eight. Did I understand much? Well, I think I, think I understood the essentials. Jesus is the son of God, died for my sins, was was raised again, is now the, the Lord put in charge of everything. Now, a deal is a deal. You can't enter into a contract agreeing to do only A, B, and C, and then later you get brought to court for breach of contract because you didn't also do D, E, and F. That's not how contracts work. You can't change the deal after it's been made. Beliefs which are not necessary to enter the community don't magically become necessary to staying in it later. If you dare to pronounce someone not a Christian because they don't believe in the creed of Constantinople, then to be consistent, you must now refuse to consider anyone a Christian who doesn't believe or who doesn't say they believe that creed, even a third grader. Sorry, kid. Constantinople, do you believe it? (laughs) What's that, mister? You're not a Christian. But in apostolic traditions, the essentials are simple and they are third-grader friendly. By the way, in the earliest creeds, they completely understood this. The earliest creeds that we have are called the baptismal creeds. Eventually, they were amplified into what the so-called Apostles' Creed. They call it the Old Roman Creed. And if you look at it, it's basically what I said. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth and in Jesus who, you know, was sent and died and rose again and now is exalted, and the Holy Spirit, whatever that is. I like that. I mean, if that's what you had to stand up and confess to be baptized as a Christian, well, then that's what's going to be necessary all along, even though there are other uh, important truths. A second observation about apostolic tradition is that A Christian deliberately going against the teachings and practice of Jesus and his apostles is in sin. God sent them to lead and instruct us and to go against them is to defy God. But the typical remedy is gentle and careful correction by reasonable and scriptural teaching, not denunciation, not dropping H-bombs on them. We who are in obedience must correct in gentleness and humility, and taking care that we too are not tempted. Maybe I'll go to correct this sinner and find that it is instead I who am missing the mark. Oops, the sinner's me. That's always a possibility in some of these things. Maybe I'm presuming too much. Maybe I've misunderstood. Maybe I'm out of compliance, even though I don't realize it. Yes, as Jesus outlines in Matthew 18, things can escalate if the person continues in their serious sin after you talk with them privately. The matter may have to be made public, and the assembly as a whole may even disinvite the person. As Paul says, handing them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Finally, When I look at the New Testament, I see functional unity as a central Christian value. We should be genuinely afraid of causing strife, hate, and division between Christians over non-essential beliefs, however important we think those non-essential beliefs are. We should be afraid of what used to be called party spirit, that is, of being a factionalist. When the New Testament talks about heresies, it sometimes means false teachings, More often it means sects, that is just religious groups without any negative connotation. But sometimes when it talks about heresies, it really means factions, bad divisions, groups that are mutually opposed and divided and within the church and which are no doubt organized around dominant personalities. Heresies in that sense, being a sectarian or a factionalist, a divider, is that's a serious Sin, it's a great evil, it's very destructive, and we must take care to avoid it. Yes, Unitarians as well as Trinitarians. The New Testament contains many what I call oneness slogans, which are meant to emphasize the unity of all who believe in Jesus as Messiah. Trinitarians love to emphasize the ones which mention Father, Son, and Spirit together, as if this somehow hints that they compose one God. But really the idea in such passages is that all Christians have one God, And all Christians have one Lord, the exalted man, Jesus. And there's also one anointing or one empowerment. There's one spirit that's been given to all Christians, which is God's spirit. Instead of these triadic passages, I'll quote a oneness slogan that Trinitarians often ignore as it mentions more than three. In Ephesians 4, we read that there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Do you get it? He's like pounding the table there. One, 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 one. Yeah, okay, maybe your church was founded by Paul and this one was founded by Peter, but we're all one. Same God, same Savior. Same faith. There's one faith, if you're talking about the essential. If you believe in Jesus as Messiah, you have that one faith. You may also combine that one faith with various speculations, some of which may not really be consistent with elements in that one faith. But even so, you have that one faith. But then, so does many a Catholic, many a Calvinist, many a Trinitarian and many a person who doesn't know what to think about Trinitarian and Unitarian theologies. Yes, even the evangelical who thinks that Jesus is God himself, and also that God is someone other than Jesus. God is merciful to us in our confusions. That's why he made the deal simple. Little is required by way of belief. More is required when it comes to repentance and obedience. You still have to take up your cross and follow Jesus once you've got these basic beliefs. But the basic beliefs aren't hard. There are many truths about God, of course, that he has revealed, which are very important, even though they're not strictly essential to being a Christian. So I've argued that H-bombs are a legitimate weapon, but only against real opponents of the gospel. That is, against those among us who oppose the minimal saving core message. For instance, people who say there isn't a God but they're Christians. Or they deny that Jesus was literally raised or that he's now in charge or they deny that he's a man. Yeah, those are all heresies in the sense in which I would say claims can be heresies. We are not to drop H-bombs, surely, on those who merely theorize differently than we do in trying to make sense of it all unless they contradict that uh, essence, I think. Now, one may argue that disarmament is better than a strict policy for use. Should we ban the bomb? <laughs> I was sharing the thesis of this paper with my wife on the way to the airport, and she all this talk of heresy and heretics, I mean, isn't this just ugly slander and name calling? Well, it can be. Um, One might argue that the language of heresy and heretics has become too poisoned by contempt by our long history of mean, ugly, unthinking denunciations. Perhaps we could just talk about essential beliefs and then about false teachings which contradict those essential beliefs and lay aside this traditional denunciation lingo. We would still be forced to label some people, I think, as false teachers, so it wouldn't be all happy times and kumbaya. But, I mean, I think we could say just about everything that needs to be said without using traditional heresy language if we wanted to. In any case, if we must use these weapons, we must avoid the tragedies of friendly fire. Thank you. This week's Thinking Music has been a small portion of the track Adam, Are You Free? by Pipe Choir. The link for this is on the blog post for this episode. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinity's podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes store and at Stitcher. For step-by-step directions on how to do this, visit trinities.org slash blog slash review. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Do you think these episodes are worth a quarter apiece? If so, you can donate a dollar each month via PayPal. And of course, any one-time gift is much appreciated. Fourth, you can send us some brief to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. Thanks for listening and for helping us to get the word out that God wants us to love Him in part by thinking hard about Him. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time. Don't forget to love God with all your mind.